Good morning. You ever been uh, super excited about a movie coming out? Yes. What comes before the movie? The trailer, right? The trailer. And what is, what is uh, part of a good trailer? What defines a good trailer? Short. <laughs> a good voiceover. There you go. Doesn't give away the ending, right? How many of you guys have gone to, maybe you didn't know you wanted to go to a movie until you saw a trailer and you're like, I really want to go to that movie. Then you went to that movie and you realize I already saw the movie <laughs> because they gave away everything in the trailer, right? A good trailer is, heightens the anticipation. Like it gives you a glimpse of what may be. It makes you lean in. It makes you all the more want to see the full feature film, but it doesn't give it away, but it points to it, right? This morning, as we conclude our series of what we believe, we're talking about eternity. And my hope this morning is we would view the doctrine of eternity as a trailer. Doctrine of eternity that's giving us a taste. It's giving us a peek. It's giving us hope. It's making us press in and going, I want that. I want to experience that. I want to be there. I want that day to come. But it's not going to give it away because the reality is once we get there, we, what we do know is that what we know about eternity, we're not going to get to heaven one day and we'll go, huh. Well, it sounded better in the preview. It's going to be better. We know it's going to be better um, once we get there. And so this morning, as we step in and we talk about eternity, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the word eternity. Maybe you think end times. Maybe you think eschatology, the study of end things. And maybe there's images that come to mind, maybe this of darkness, of fear, of the, the day coming and judgment and wrath and all these things come to mind and you put together and you think about like, that's the end. Like the end is scary. A lot of times when we talk about the end, we spend a whole lot more talking about when the end is rather than what the end is. And this morning, we're not going to talk about a whole lot of the what and what do we, when's the day going to come? Because actually, spoiler alert, like it says like we don't know, angels don't know, Jesus doesn't even know when the Father says he's coming back, but the day is in fact coming. And I heard a pastor say he was, when, it, when thinking about end times and thinking about eternity, he said he was moving from God's planning committee to his welcoming committee. <laughs> Rather than trying to plan for his arrival, he was simply going to be ready to welcome him whenever he comes. And so this morning, as we talk about eternity, I want us to leave with a little bit greater anticipation of his arrival and a little greater purpose in how we live today because I want us to see and I want us to be reminded that eternity is not one day. Eternity starts today. We are living in eternity right now. Sanctuary statement on eternity reads like this. It says, we believe in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body, the judgment at the end of the world and the endless punishment of those who have rejected Christ and the eternal joy for those made righteous through him. This morning in a big topic like eternity, I wanna simplify it and I wanna to point to one reality, two locations and three responses. The one reality that the doctrine of eternity sits in is this, that you and I were made to live forever. You and I were made for eternity. 
When we look throughout scripture, we see that while eternity seems like a hard thing to grasp, eternity is what we were created for. It's what sin disrupted and it's what God is ultimately going to restore. You see, whenever you ask yourself, is this it? Is this all there is? What that is, is inside of us, hardwired inside each one of us, is this belief that there's got to be something more than what we see around us, what's right in front of us. And I believe the doctrine of eternity is God taking our chin, lifting our faces and saying, would you look? Would you look at what's coming? Would you look at the end? And would that change how you live today? You see, we believe throughout the New Testament, it's pointing to the fact that there's got to be more. There's got to be more than just this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's got to be more than this life. There's got to be eternal life. And in the really, really depressingly hopeful book of Ecclesiastes, it points to this, this struggle that we all have. And the struggle is that eternity is inside of us Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's this struggle, there's eternity in our hearts, but trying to understand, trying to piece it together, understand what God is doing and how he's working and what, all, how, what to make sense out of life. It, we can't get there. It just doesn't click. It just doesn't make sense. But inside of us is there's this longing, this belief that we were made for more. We were made to live eternally. And Jesus himself in one of the most famous verses of all the Bible, John three sixteen, points to that there is eternal life when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The one reality that our world is anchored on is eternity. We were created to live forever. When you go all the way back to the garden in Genesis 2, and the direction that God gave to Adam was anchored in eternity. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you shall, may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. From the very beginning, God created man, set him in the garden and says, I want you to live forever. But, but if you do, thing, do not do things my way, if you rebel against me, it's certain death will come. So the reality that we live in is that we were made to live forever and all creation groans because sin has made life temporal when it was meant to be eternal. So if the one reality is that we were made to live forever and sin fractured that as a result of what sin did, reality of, heaven, of eternity now is that there are two locations. And you know exactly what those locations are, but I wanna give us just a quick overview. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus again and again was contrasting life and death, death and life. Believing in me leads to life. Rejecting me leads to death. He was 
extremely clear about these two paths. And he points, he tells his disciples who were disconcerted and, and confused about where are you going and what are you doing? In John 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, but if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is saying, I'm going. There is life after death and there is going to be a place that I'm going where I am going to bring those who believe in me to heaven. There is heaven as a eternal destination. But what's interesting is that you and I cannot possibly fully grasp what heaven is like. Because the only reference we have for heaven in scripture is heaven being described using broken pieces of what we have around us. The best we can do to describe it is to say a perfect form of what this is, but we can't really grasp what perfect is because all we've known is broken, right? Have you ever had those moments? You have a place that is maybe most like heaven to you. Maybe it's the beach. Maybe it's the mountains. Maybe it's a sunrise, sunset. Maybe it's time with family and friends where it's just pure and sweet. And there's those moments where we go, man, this is a taste of heaven. What are we saying? saying this, this is like one of the moments where this is as good as it gets, which means it must be something like that. But the reality is we don't really understand what that will be like because we only know broken. What we do know is that heaven will be beyond our wildest imaginations because we will be with God and because of what will not be present. And that is sin. But if there is heaven, there must be another destination. If Jesus says there's life and there's death, if there's with me and without me, then we come to the second destination, hell. Now, a lot of images may come to mind when you think of hell. It's probably dark and it's probably, there's probably fire and there might be a little red guy with a pitchfork. Right? We think of hell and just like heaven, we can't fully wrap our heads around how incredible heaven will be. We cannot fully grasp how bad hell really will be. Why? Because we are pointing to hell and the only thing we have to point to hell is what we have around us and how bad things are here. But even in the worst parts of life here in the worst parts of the broken world we live in, guess what? God's still there. We call these God's common grace available to all people. Every day the sun comes up. Every day, this is the, many days, the rain comes, plants grow, things happen, there's life. And guess what? When we look at our earth and we go, how bad could hell get? We look at the bad, worst places on earth, but even there, God is still present. So hell cannot, we cannot grasp how bad it actually is. But what's interesting is that Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And really interestingly, he talked more about hell than Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, John, and Peter put together. Which really begs the question, why? Why would Jesus spend so much time talking about such a bad thing, such a terrible place? 
Well, we can't grasp how bad it really is. The only one who's been on this earth that knows how bad hell actually will be is Jesus. And it's so bad that he wants to talk about how bad it is and the, what it is more than he wants to talk about the good place of where you could be because he doesn't want us to go there. The fact that Jesus talks about hell as much as he does points to how incredibly loving and gracious he is. If you knew what he knew, you would do exactly what he did and make sure that you and I and the rest of the world would know that there's a place you don't want to go and there's a place you don't have to go. Paul David Tripp in his book on doctrine points to hell in three ways, three ways that describe how hellish it will be. I think these were helpful to me. One, hell, in hell there is separation from God talked before, with everything we have around us, as bad as it is, God is still present in our world. Hell, there is total and utter separation from God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul writes, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You and I cannot fully grasp what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it will be like to be completely absent of the presence of God. In the moments when you and I feel the most alone, in the moments when you and I feel like God is most distant, that is nothing compared to what it will be like in hell when there is an absolute, utter absence of God's presence. And because of that, there's not only separation from God, hell is marked by inhumanity. We were created, as we talked about, by God in his image to be in relationship with him. So if in a place where there is separation from God, his presence is not there, you and I cannot be who we've been created to be. Therefore, hell will be marked by inhumanity. Paul points to the utter devastation of those who live in rebellion to God in Romans 1, 29, when he says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When you take the presence of God out, we become inhuman, which is why hell will be marked by the separation from God and in humanity. And if that's not bad enough, it's also marked by unending torment. Revelation 20 verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As I said earlier, fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth are just a few descriptions of what hell will be like. And what they are, are grasping for straws to describe the utter devastation and desolation that heaven or hell will be. So if you question the two destinations, all we have to do is go to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 25, he's talking about the fact that there's gonna be people who think they know him. There's gonna be people who think they have a relationship with him. And it's absolutely terrifying what he says. In verse 41 of Matthew 25, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared 
for the devil and his angels. And then skipping ahead in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That sounds extremely dark. It sounds extremely heavy, except for the fact that God gave it to us. Jesus not waiting until one day. He's telling us what the day will look like as a warning because he doesn't want anyone to get there. The fact that Jesus talks as much as he does about hell does not point to how ruthless and how mean he is, but how incredibly gracious and loving he is because the invitation he's giving is, please don't choose that. And the question that comes up inevitably for us as we look at these two destinations, the reality that, hey, Regardless of what you believe, the belief is that we were created to live eternally. And as a result of sin, there are two destinations. There's hell and there's heaven. Why and how can a loving God send people to that place if it's that bad? I think the answer is he doesn't. Now, we would like to say he doesn't, meaning everybody gets option A. Everybody somehow, way, gets to heaven. But that's not what Jesus said. So either Jesus was lying to us or there are in fact two places and there are in fact two paths and he's allowed us to choose. And now this is where theology comes in colliding and makes your head hurt, right? You're going, well, where does God's sovereignty, he does whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it and man's responsibility fit together. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I just know what we have written. I know that God is sovereign. And I know he has put a choice before us. And so part of our responsibility in light of eternity is making sure that people can understand what the gracious gift that our God has extended to them. And he's using us to do that, which is what we talked about last week. His plan A to save the world was the church, was us, was the saved people telling people that they've been saved, was the people knowing what God had done for them, telling them what he could do for them. When you come to this doctrine of eternity and you recognize the two locations, it's hard. And to know and to see clearly that the Bible portrays a heaven and a hell, it's heavy. But it should spur us to action and it should be encouraging because Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he wants all to be with him. This idea of choosing an eternity, an eternal destination and having a choice and is summarized very well, I feel like, by J.I. Packard, who says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Think about it. From the very beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve chose what? They chose self. They said, I know better. And for all of humanity since then, we've been prone to, through a sin nature, to choose self. And when Jesus came, he says, I'm going to give you another option. I want you to choose me. Would you choose me? Would you choose life? One thing we know from scripture is God is not forcing anyone to love him. We are not robots. 
And somehow his sovereignty with our responsibility come together in a beautiful place. Hell is heavy, it's dark, and it can feel so wrong. What's so right is that a loving God did not leave it a mystery. He made it clear and he invited us, as Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might, not you may, not you have a much better chance, but you will be saved. Which is why the doctrine of eternity is so comforting. You and I were made to live forever and you and I can know what forever will look like. There are two locations, but you and I can know exactly where we will spend eternity. That's not scary, that's comforting. That's not harsh, that's loving. But for many, when we think about eternity, right, this is where we land. We go, hey, made to live forever, two destinations, heaven and hell. Which one are you going to? Do you have your fire insurance? Do you have your ticket punched for heaven? And what we do is we sell the doctrine of eternity short because we say that eternity is there. When the reality is eternity starts now. Eternity is in, the doctrine of eternity should inform how we live today. So I want to end by pointing to three responses, three responses that I think we want to have. And you could have a long list of responses, but these are just three that I hope would encourage you as you step into this next week and going, what would it look like for me to live in light of eternity? What would it look like for me to live as if this were true? I want you to flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to end our time there. And this is the last chapter of Peter's second letter. And I don't know what you think of when you think of Peter. I don't know what comes to mind. But I get a guy that was, had a really hard time sitting still. Like really excited, really passionate. And when you read First and Second Peter, you kind of get that feeling because he's all over the place. But what he is, is he's incredibly passionate. In this last chapter, I don't know what your Bible says, but ahead on top of chapter three, my Bible says, the day of the Lord will come. So Peter is saying, I want you anchored in this doctrine of eternity. I want you anchored in the belief in the reality that Jesus is coming back. And I think, and I want, and I desire, and I'm challenging and reminding you that your life should look different. So chapter three, verse one says, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's saying, this is the second letter I'm writing you. And if you look throughout his letters, throughout his letters, he's saying, I'm reminding you, I'm remind, uh, reminding you, I want you to remember, I'm stirring you up. I'm stirring you up by stirring, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What does he want his readers to remember? What does he want us to remember? I want you to remember what was promised. I want you to remember what's been said. I don't know about you, but as you think about your life, as you think about this week, and what has been stressful, what has been overwhelming, what has been taxing, what has been burdensome for you, I wonder how those things would be looked at differently by you if you and I simply did a better job remembering. 
What is it in your space with what you walked in with today? What is it that God is saying, would you remember blank? Would you remember this promise? Would you remember this gift? Would you remember this verse? Would you remember this truth? Because we're told again and again that we've been given everything we need. And I think part of our problem is that we forget to remember. And here, Peter is reminding, he's calling back, remembering, and then in the next couple of verses, he's gonna point to these scoffers, these people that are saying, hey, you believe Jesus is coming back? Like, have you checked the time? Like, it's been a long time. And every day is like just the same, again and again and again and again. So what makes you think tomorrow is gonna be any different? And Peter's going, hey, time, the amount of time you've been waiting has no bearing on the promise that was given. Which is why in verse 8 he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All should spend eternity with him. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I don't know about you, but this verse is initially not very comforting because I don't want the times that I'm waiting that feel like a thousand years for God to tell me, well, it just feels like a day to me. Well, God, I don't care what it feels like to you. Would you like to know what it feels like for me? Like we're waiting a really, really long time. But we read this and we got to remember God is outside of time. And now think about this. You feel like what you're waiting for in the future feels like forever. But how many of you look back and you go, oh my gosh, it seems just like yesterday. We don't know thousands of years, but we know many years. And oftentimes for us, when we look back, we go, man, those 10 years feel like a blink of an eye. Right? There is a day when we are with Jesus in eternity, we will look back and we'll go, oh my gosh, it was just like that. But Peter's not saying you shouldn't feel like that. He's giving comfort and saying, hey, when it feels like that, remember that the amount of time you've been waiting isn't mean, doesn't mean that God is slow. It doesn't mean that God's not coming. That should not gauge, allow you to disrupt what you believe about his promise. God is not slow, which leads us to the three responses that I want us to see when it comes to this idea of eternity. It's gonna be in 11 in verse 13, 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Stop there. The first thing we're gonna see Peter pointing us to is that in light of eternity, we live with the end in mind. We live with the end in mind. He's just come out of a couple of verses ahead that we just skipped over. He's talking about the world ending and he's talking about everything burning and he's talking about everything being destroyed. And he's saying, in light of this, in light of this, look at verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The word since, right? Since, as a result of, therefore, because of, what I've just said, as a result of the end and how it's going to come, that should change what we do today. In light of eternity, we are not called to simply sit. 
We're called to live actively with the end in mind, which means we are storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. We are investing in things that are not going to burn. We're pouring ourselves out as living sacrifices to the honor and glory of God today because of what it will do and the impact it will have in eternity. You see, everything will burn. He says, not just burn, he talks about the fact that it's going to be incinerated. It's going to dissolve. Like, I don't know, stuff dissolves. Like, can you think about the world and the universe? Like, all of the universes just dissolving? Like, there will be nothing left. Which should mean that, look at all the things and the many things that consume my attention and my worries on a given day are all tied to what will burn. And that's not, that's not, God doesn't say you shouldn't enjoy this world. He says, enjoy this world in light of what, will, what is coming. Enjoy this world in light of the fact that it won't last. A couple weeks ago, we were at the beach. I don't know about you, but um, we will spend some time inevitably throughout the week making a sandcastle, right? And you, if you walk down the beach, you see some people that are incredibly gifted when it comes to building sandcastles. And when you walk down the beach, you might take a picture of a sandcastle that's been made or you might marvel at what it is. But what you've never seen is you've never walked out on the beach the next morning and seen somebody irate that their sandcastle was gone. Because when you build a sandcastle on the beach, what we all know is that inevitably the tide will come in and tomorrow, guess what? The beach is going to look like you never built a sandcastle. And some of you saw that last week. Some of you, we saw the Marietta Square, the Choctober. Right, you walk around, you see all these chalk drawings. I'm thinking, I'm amazed at the art that's here, but I have a really hard time spending this much time, effort, and energy on something that's going to wash away. If I'm going to draw something, it's going to last. What Peter is pointing to here is he's saying, hey, remember, in light of the fact that nothing will make it through the fire, live differently. Live lives, lives of godliness and holiness. So we're going to live with the end in mind. And secondly, we're going to wait actively, not passively. Verse 12, he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Waiting for and hastening. I love this. He doesn't just say waiting. He says waiting for and hastening. So think about it for a second. We think of waiting as wasting, right? You go somewhere and you have to wait in a long line. That was a waste of your time, right? Like nobody likes waiting. And we try to avoid waiting, which is why you can order at Starbucks on the app. So when you walk in, your drink is sitting there. So you don't have to wait two minutes. Those of you that don't even go to Starbucks, you don't like waiting on your coffee, which is why you use a Keurig. And you get frustrated that you have to wait on the Keurig, which is why you set the timer in the morning so it's already on, so it doesn't have to warm up so you can get your coffee that much faster. We hate waiting. Peter says, hey, waiting in light of eternity is not wasted. It's active. It's not passive. It's active. We're using the time we've been given Pointing to verse 11, where we can live lives of godliness and holiness, investing in something that will actually last. You see, here we see the doctrine of eternity intersect with the doctrine of God's sovereignty once again, where the end will be the end. He's written the ending, but you and I have a part to play in bringing about that end. 
you and I, through our actions, can actually bring about the coming of Jesus. He's using us to accomplish his purposes that will be accomplished before he comes. Paul Tripp writes this about our waiting. He says, we wait knowing that how we wait and what we do as we wait are means by which God brings our waiting to an end. Read it again. We wait knowing that how we wait and what we do as we wait are means by which God brings our waiting to an end. Waiting isn't wasted. Every day we have, God is using and inviting us to be a part of what he's accomplishing. Therefore, we wait actively, not passively. As a kid, I learned this because as one of four, we inevitably there'd be have activities and things wouldn't line up and you might have to wait for a ride or get a ride and go early and be dropped off early. And my siblings and I hated it, but my dad saw no problem with you being early or having to stay late because his solution was always take a book. You can have a book with you and no time is wasted. You can read. Now today, obviously we have phones and everything else. You don't take a book, you take your phone. But reality is, guess what? Waiting doesn't have to be wasted. And I'm guessing right now for us, we don't like to wait so we're always active. But if we're honest, in light of eternity, a lot of our activity is wasted. A lot of our scrolling, a lot of our thinking, a lot of our things that consume us, when we put them in light of eternity, it is just wasting time. And the invitation I believe God is giving us in light of eternity is saying, how can I use my time actively to do things, invest in things, be a part of things that are actually eternal? So my question is your life, is my life marked by active waiting or passive wasting? Eternity says that what you do today matters. Jesus is inviting us into the eternal in the present moments of our lives. Lastly, verse 13, Peter writes this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We don't wait on blind hope. We wait based on a promise, according to his promise. And there's not been a single promise that God has ever made that he hasn't fulfilled. The question is not if, the question is when. Therefore, we look back at the promises that have been fulfilled as comfort and encouragement as we continue to wait for the ultimate promise to be fulfilled, Jesus returning. So we expect the promise. We expect it to be true because it's never not been true. When life is hard and hopeless, his promises still stand. And I think the doctrine of eternity, once again, is God lifting our chin, shifting our focus to see beyond the temporal, to remember the eternal, and then to come back in the moment and say, let the reality of that change this, change the way I'm seeing life today. Because what's coming is not like a patched up version of life here. What's coming, and Peter points to, is a new heaven and a new earth that we can't fully comprehend, that we can't fully describe. But what we do know is that the trailer is not going to disappoint. 
the feature film, all of eternity is gonna be you and I in awe of what God has done, of who God is and the eternity we get to spend with him. But that's not just one day, that's today. Which is why in John 17, three, Peter, or Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We know Jesus. We have eternal life today, which guess what? Means eternity starts now. And the truth about eternity helps us clearly delineate between the preparation and the destination. You see, preparation is like practice. Preparation for something means work. It means diligence. It means discipline. It means doing things you again and again and again. And, and when we look around in our life today, we go, man, this seems so monotonous. It seems so mundane. It just seems like it just goes on and on and on and on and on. But the reality is every day and every moment that God has given us will not be wasted because it is preparation. Preparation for you and me of what is going to come when we arrive at the destination. Now, if we stop and we lose sight of the destination and we simply try to make this place, we try to make practice the destination, we'll miss out on the destination that he's calling us to, the destination he's inviting us to take every moment that we live here and preparing for. I can't make sense out of all of life and neither can you. But when things don't go our way, when we feel overwhelmed, when it seems like God is absent, the question is, God, what are you preparing in me? How is this? How do I view this hardship, this hurt, this heartbreak in light of eternity? How are you using this to prepare me for where you're one day taking me? Because this isn't home. This is preparation. It's not the destination. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I know this, your life and my life will look different if we live it in light of eternity, of knowing how the story ends, knowing the promises that God has made, and then the invitation to actually live differently today because of eternity tomorrow. The question is for me, will I live as if this is true. Because I can tell you one reality and I can tell you two destinations and I can give you three responses. But the question is, will I believe it? And will I live as if it's true? So my invitation for you is to think about that day, to live in light of that day, but then to go from that day back to this day And go, God, what are you calling me to do now? Because eternity starts today. I love the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 25. And we'll end with these. He says, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And I keep going on verse nine. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In light of that day, we get to live today because eternity 
starts now. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Thankful that you've come. We're thankful that you've given us, God, abundantly clear picture of what eternity can look like. And all we've got is this little trailer, but God, there is eternity coming in a lifetime, all of eternity, year after year, something that our heads just hurt to think about with you. So God, we ask that we would embrace that. We would live as if that's true, that the doctrine of eternity would comfort us and spur us on to live in light of who you are and what you've done for us. God, there's a lot of stories represented in this room. God, there are, I am sure, people in here this morning that are sitting feeling like this hardship, this struggle, this heartbreak will never end. God, would you make your presence felt there? Would you help provide your comfort and your peace? And God, wherever we are, would you lift our eyes? Would you lift our eyes from the temporal to see the eternal? so that we can come back and live today in light of eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.